now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift Vieira's Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. One of probably the most underrated qualities that you can have as a creator in this, the entertainment industry, is stamina. Stamina as it applies to being willing to take on failure and rejection, but also stamina with an idea that you really believe in. I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School and host of this, the No Film School podcast. And my guest today is Jason Walliner. Jason has had a lot of success in the industry. And if you look at his resume and we talk about it today, there's all kinds of incredible stuff on there. Some of my personal favorites of the last few years in the comedy world, which has undergone major changes. And we talk a lot about what happened to comedy, what had to happen to comedy in the world of insanity that we live in. Absurdity became the norm. So what happened? How did you find the absurd and surprise people? We talk about how he's actually one of the few people who's managed to do that. But that's not really the focus of today's interview and the project he has, Paul T. Goldman, which has been out for a while. If you haven't seen Paul T. Goldman, check it out. We can't really do it justice by describing what it is. The trailers don't really do it justice. It's a very challenging thing to explain and pitch. And <laughs> I think that's exactly what Jason confronted over and over again, as for many years, he tried to get this thing going. This was the project he believed he had to do. He talks about why. He talks about his stamina against all the no's and all the things about being in this industry that just that that willingness to keep going kind of defines whether or not things work out for you. And sometimes, frankly, I don't know if it matters, but if you don't have it, you're certainly not going to get far because even when you've had success like Jason did, you still have to keep pressing and pushing forward and believing in that thing and why. And eventually timing might work out as it did for Paul T. Goldman. So here we are with Jason talking about Paul T. Goldman, comedy in general, the current landscape, and pushing through all the hardships of this industry. I want to jump right in because you make a lot of the stuff that I personally love that's out there, comedy, oh, thanks. in a world where we don't get a ton of it anymore. And you have sort of with the style and stuff you're doing, you've broken a lot of rules or sort of seen an evolution of the form, you know, Borat, Nathan, Fielder, and now this like is definitely a next step. Can you tell me a little bit about what's evolving in scripted slash unscripted slash meta slash self-aware, <laughs> like all the, all this stuff that's kind of coming together and, and how you've kind of been in the middle of that process? Yeah, I mean, I've always loved work and comedy stuff that does play with form, experiments, feels, you know, fresh in some way. And, you know, at the same time, like in the last few years, 
I feel like there's been this shift where real life is just crazier and funnier than anything that is just purely written. Uh, and so it, it just feels more and more appropriate to include elements of real life. I, I mean, it might have been something with like the Trump era where uh, reality just became this really dark cartoon and you <laughs> saw all sorts of comedy, late night comedy, political comedy, everything kind of failed and nothing was funny anymore because you couldn't be funny in the normal way uh, in terms of like heightening or exagger exaggerating absurdity because life had just become so absurd. And so, and I also found at the same time in the last few years, there's such a glut of like streaming shows. There's so much stuff coming out, but you know, very little stuff that I love. And me and my friends more and more were kind of looking to the real world in terms of, you know, just yeah, real strange things that were happening or videos popping up on, you know, YouTube and TikTok and whatever. Just life, the, the richness of life is so much weirder, funnier, more interesting than most written content. And I think this kind of wave has has just kind of responded to that, that, that you know, a wave of work and comedic work that that like kind of incorporates real life, real people, real things in that way. Yeah, you said it well. You you said something I've thought about a lot too, which is that there's literally nothing you can script that's as funny, as outrageous and as disruptive comedically as what's happened around us. Like Donald Trump's presidency at times just seemed like, and I don't mean to compare him to something I like, but like Groucho Marx routines. Like it was just like, how is this real? That's how is this not so much Right, because Groucho was all about irreverence in the face right. of like established, you know, dignified society. And that's what <laughs> Trump was. And so right. you can't, you know, so much comedy in that kind of comedy was like about pushing up against uh, the establishment and against, you know, dignified society and, and rules and stuff like that. But when you have someone with complete irreverence for the rules not only of politics, but of like reality <laughs> um, in charge. It really threw everything for a loop, I think, in terms of what's to be said. And I think it's kind of, it set everyone in, in my world spinning a little bit. Yeah. I, you were in, so like you were very much in like the successful, thriving, like quality, like scripted comedy world, like directing stuff that was scripted comedy that, that did well, you know, that was like hitting, hitting all the, the TV shows, the sketches, the comedians, and something seemed to happen. Like, I guess you're right around that era, but like with sketches, with things like, like Borat, the, the second Borat subsequent movie film, it felt like there was a real decision to be like, we're going to do some very scripted bits and just let the world happen to him. And like, <laughs> just put the camera on the world as much as possible. That feels like it was partly reaction. But then also like Nathan for you is like almost all about like putting a camera, like how, I guess I'm, I'm dabbling around here, but like when you put a camera somewhere, things happen, right? People change and they start acting even more ridiculous. Can you tell like, like how'd you stumbled into this? Like the genius of capturing that. You know, there are ways that people will adapt their behavior when they're on camera. There's these you know, kind of Stanley Milgram-esque like ways of uh, you see people comply or behave how they think they're supposed to behave on camera. A lot of like Paul T. Goldman is actually kind of the opposite of that. We were hoping people would forget they were on camera. And Paul to me was such an interesting person, just a fascinating person. I just kind of became very obsessed with him. 
And it was really about using him as this element to kind of put into real situations and then just observe and document what what would happen. And sometimes it was funny and, and awkward. And then sometimes it was very moving. And, you know, sometimes it was very unsettling. And it was really just about kind of using him, uh, his presence as a way to explore all these different things. You know, in terms of like the Borat movie, you know, Borat as a character was always about being an extreme stereotype of what people imagined a foreigner to be and then putting it with real people and, and then seeing how his behavior would reveal, you know, often racism or just cluelessness about people or, you know, what it would reveal. And in the second movie, I, I also wanted, I was kind of pushing also to kind of reveal some positive things about people. And you saw that with the <laughs> babysitter and with the, the conspiracy guys he lived with. We wanted more of a balance. But by the time... Sasha decided to make another Borat movie. You know, he, he says it was because of the Trump era in that, you know, reality had kind of risen to meet comedy and that it wasn't really absurd anymore. And that's, I mean, I was thinking part of why he, he got away with, you know, walking around as Borat in all these pretty crazy disguises in that movie, <laughs> um, which I wasn't sure if it was going to work at all. Um, and these giant, you know, fat suits and fake noses and whatever. It, it's like, because, yeah, the, the world has just kind of risen in its level of uh, of absurdity in the 14 years since he made the first one. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, yeah, it's a good point. And I always think of like Nathan is like putting a straight man against the world because the world is already is so ridiculous. You just put a straight man there and it's like, it's hilarious. Your career in virtual production starts here and now. Earn your spot on tomorrow's set with Synapse Virtual Production in LA by enrolling in RIT's immersive 10-day course this June. An exclusive experience in LA, you'll get the foundation you need to grow your career in a virtual production studio, the kind behind the groundbreaking effects seen in Disney's The Mandalorian and Marvel's Avenger films. Limited seats are available. Learn more and enroll today at vpritcertified.education. That's vp.ritcertified.education. The thing that it, you mentioned, Paul T. Goldman, which I want to ask a lot of questions about, but like, how did you stumble into him? How did you find him? How did you develop this relationship? And then kind of the project with you, Seth and Evan, like the germination of like how you were going to approach it, because it's very intentional and extremely unique i think of things like adaptation a little bit like it's definitely in the dna but it's a it's a really fascinating show yeah adaptation synecdoche new york uh Charlie kaufman's work is a huge uh inspiration to the stuff i try to do um he, paul tweeted at me in 2012 uh as it says in the show the show is very upfront kind of about what it is and the process mm -hmm. Because I figured if I lied about it at all, you know, he's still a person. He'll talk. It'll come out. So I, everything in there, it was it's really hard to know what's real and what's not, though, in the show, right? I That's can, part of what it is. Part of the examination is figuring out what of what Paul is saying is real, is not what he, might he be, you know, possibly lying about, but possibly just mistaken about. I never so knew feels that. Feels real versus <laughs> is real, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. And what's real and what's not. And then on a bigger level, how much does that matter if you're living in a reality that is not matching up with objective facts that can be determined, which we you know try to do in that final episode? Does it matter? When does it matter? When does it matter? When does it start impacting other people in negative ways? That's kind of the stuff we were looking at. But I, I everything in the show that 
me, the show, is saying to you is Israel, Israel. I never okay. want, you know, the show itself, the format, I knew it would be very confusing for people. So I tried to be very clear. And I also know, though, with my history and, and the type <laughs> of things I worked on, people, some people watch this show and thought the whole thing is fake, thought he's a fake person. Right. <laughs> and I was reading a, um, like a Reddit thread the other day of this guy who had a very elaborate theory of how Paul is like a completely made up person and the book doesn't exist and he doesn't exist and he's a brilliant actor and I'm a genius because I've been just running this long con for a decade. I, I mean, it's so flattering to me to think that I could pull that off. No, I'm uh, much uh, less impressive than that. This is a real guy uh, and, and he really contacted me on Twitter. He said, I have an incredible story to tell. I've written a book. I've written a screenplay. And, you know, it's basically about how I married someone. It turned out she had a secret double life, was, you know, running an international crime ring and read my story about how I empowered myself and became determined to bring down the whole damn ring. And so, you know, I, I became very obsessed with Paul. I read his book many times. <laughs> I watched him for a while before I reached out. And then eventually I was like, okay, I, I kind of know what to do with this. And so, yeah, the idea was just to kind of always do like a documentary project. Okay. Actually. It, right, it I was going to ask, when did you yeah. decide that you were going to involve him making it into it? You know, and how did you talk to him about that? You know, very early on, I, I at first I was like, oh, well, that's a funny idea for something about kind of a, a kind of nebbishy guy trying to take down a crime ring. I was like, maybe that's a movie, you know, he'd write a movie. <laughs> And then I got to know him and I was like, no, no, Paul, Paul is the story. I've never met anyone like this. I've never met anyone done anything remotely like this. I don't think there has been anyone who's done anything remotely like this. Um, and at the same time, I found uh, all of these elements of his story to be very universal and relatable and, and things in there that, that were actually resonating with me about the need to feel loved or whatever. So it had all this heightened stuff that I found very fascinating and interesting and funny and sad and disturbing and all everything and then also at its core had like a very human feeling story so i was like I, I think there's something here so i contacted paul and early on i was like the most interesting version once i got to know him would be him in the middle of this him starring in it because he had written the script he wrote every, you know and that's another thing i i swear to you he really wrote line, the script every line of the show <laughs> in every dramatized scene in every scene of the spinoffs of the Paul T. Goldman Chronicles of the other spinoffs that <laughs> so we get into the finale. He wrote every single line. Nothing was written by me. Nothing was written to be funny. Um, and I was like, it'll be so interesting to see him in the middle of all this. And then, and I was like, I, and I also want to see the, I, I, I basically, I was like, can I take a camera inside Paul's mind and really dig around and figure it out? Um, and during the pilot, I hired my friend, this, uh, fellow named Jason Tippett, who's a documentarian who I, I really I made a film I really liked. And I was like, I want you to be on set as like a third camera and just kind of float and just find moments and uh -huh. like and um and just be around and, and just follow Paul and see what it's like for him to be on set having never acted before and having these other actors do these scenes that are written in not a very traditional Hollywood way. And he wrote and he's sitting and, right there. And he wrote and, and and then it was really in the editing of that that I realized how valuable Tippett's camera was because I was like, oh, this is like as important as what's going on is kind of the process of making of it. So I, you know, but basically I, I also didn't tell Paul I was hoping he would star as himself. 
I waited for him. I waited two years for him to kind of come up with that on his own. I always wanted him to like steer the process. And so I got to know him in 2012. We filmed a little interview with just me and a few friends. He was living in Newport Beach at the time. He moved back to Florida. So I got this company, Caviar, involved. They put a little money into it. And I was able to take a crew down to Florida to interview Paul. And then we brought him out to do auditions with real actors because that was the big question mark. I had a hunch that if you put him with real actors, you would get something very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> That's the word for it, yeah. <laughs> well, I never, I, you know, obviously he's not like a professional writer, but I was, for me, it was never about like, it's so bad, it's good, or like... Right, 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 right. Yes. The room. To me, it was more like, this is like an outsider artist. This is someone who completely coming from somewhere else than, you know, you or I who knows, you know, normal Hollywood stuff. And he's expressing himself. And it's, yes, it's like unpolished and it, and it sounds different, but it's a real person expressing their version of their life. And I was like, well, that's going to be the most interesting thing. Yeah. While we were doing the auditions, he's reading himself with actresses coming into play. And this is in the show, actresses coming into play his first wife, his second wife. And then at a certain <laughs> point, he just turns to the camera and starts talking. And he's like, what'd you think of that? And he liked it, right? And then he's like, I thought we could do that in the show. It would be like a house of cards kind of thing, but with a real person. And then, and he's like, you know, maybe I could play Paul. And, and I was like, <laughs> I jumped on. I was like, yes, you could play Paul. I, yeah, I mean, I'm sure he was almost half joking because we were auditioning real actors, but then he got very excited about it right away. But I really tried to let him kind of get there. The same thing with the behind the scenes, the same thing with the interviews of all the real people from his life. So, you know, it, ultimately the show was very close to what I wanted it to be. It started out being a movie. The story got bigger and bigger, became a series. And then and it also became clear that it was probably more likely to get it funded as a series than an independent feature. And, and so it became a show. We eventually sold it to, to Peacock. But um, it was kind of a very slow, organic process of making sure he was like arriving there on his own, letting him get there, letting him kind of decide and, and, and following his lead after that. The patience you've had to like kind of follow this lead slowly and carefully, like with him for over 10 years to do little bits of it to decide in your brain, like, I am not going to push this to become something sooner, like by casting, you know, like someone you've worked with, but who's done this role is like Bob Odenkirk as him and like try to pack it because he kind of did that movie recently. <laughs> like, like you talked yeah. about an idea of a movie where you're like a nebbishy guy who like, and it's right. like, that's a movie. I've seen a few iterations on it over the years. Like, but what I, I sort of started with was this idea that you've, you're a part of an evolution of comedy and drama that's like, but we have to mix it. We have to surprise people. Like there needs to be a newness. That's like, if it's just the movie we know, like by people, like you said, like you or I <laughs> like know how movie beats work. It's not fresh. Like you, comedy has to be fresh, you know? Yeah. I mean, I will say to what you're saying a minute ago, like the, some might call it patience. I would say it's more like it, I was failing at getting this done for 10 years. If you, <laughs> if you had told me, if you told me in 2012 this would take 10 years to finish, I, pr I don't know that I would have kept at it. I always <laughs> felt along the way that I was close to finishing it. <laughs> I would have finished it in 2012. You know, if someone had put up the money to, to do it with him starring as himself, I would have just done it then. I, ultimately, I think it's a much better show having had all this time to kind of slow cook. But, you know, I, ne I always thought I was like, oh, it'll just be, you know, it, something's going to click and a few months later, it, we're going to do it. And that's also in the fifth episode, you keep seeing how we're trying and failing. I pitched this thing, probably spent 100 meetings pitching this thing. And you imagine without having seen any of it, 
you know, just having an interview I shot on my own with Paul being like, I believe that this guy can carry a show. I believe this will be interesting <laughs> enough to spend a few hours here. It was, uh, people looked at me like I was crazy. And how did you finally sell? How did, like, what? Because, again, it, like, there's, yeah. a, there's a niche world, and I'm in it, where it's like, if you came to me and you said, like, if I was the person who said yes, I'd be like, oh, please, like, make 10 shows about weird guys with their own reality and get a camera in it. <laughs> but, like, there's that, some, that's not the majority of the industry, and there isn't, like, an idea of, like, we can make money. How did you finally pitch it to people who are normal, not like I am, <laughs> and get them to say, like, yes, let's do this? It was partially that I was finally established enough that people took a chance on me, basically, is that I started this out in 2012. I had done, you know, some like I'd done Parks and Recreation. I'd done a few network things, but mostly like weird adult swim stuff. <laughs> I wanted to make, I said, this will be, you know, hopefully very funny, but also very heavy. <laughs> and yeah. I had no established career as a documentarian, anything like that. So I, you know, trying and trying and trying, but getting certain people excited about it enough that I was able to get it going as a pilot at, at Hulu in 2016 and we shot it in 2017 and then that failed they got it you know halfway through shooting they got a new boss in you know that uh he, he said he didn't like this kind of thing he was fired a couple months later just like bad <laughs> luck bad timing and so then trying 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 and then Quibi possibly happening at Quibi they wanted yeah. to do it and then Borat came along. I was like, well, I have to pause this for a year and a half because I really feel like I need to do the Borat movie because I was such a fan of the first one and would feel personally responsible if a, a bad Borat movie came out of it. <laughs> I hadn't tried everything I could to make it as good as it could be. And so I did that. And then that came out. And really, it was that. And after the pilot, um, we showed the pilot to Seth and Evan and James Weaver from their company, Point Grey. And you showed them the, the Hulu pilot. I showed them the Hulu pilot. We were like, you know, I have this crazy thing. I've been trying at that point for five years. I was like, would you guys come on as producers and help us finish it? And so, and, and then Borat happened, you know, and then we went out after Borat, you know, they, you know, you have something that's successful that people like and you, you go around and people ask you, is there, is there any IP you're interested in, you know, Marvel and Star Wars. And I go, yeah, there's a, there's a book called uh, Duplicity, A True Story of Crime and Deceit by Paul T. Goldman. That's the IP I most want to adapt. And, um, and then eventually, <laughs> then, you know, everyone looks at you like you're crazy again. And it also coincided with this true crime boom. And I never, okay. I never considered this a, a true crime show. It, I, it's almost like a Trojan horse true crime show where yes. it feels like a true crime show, but you watch a, you watch one or two episodes, you you start to realize it's something very different, but it uses a lot of those conventions and, 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 and techniques. And that being popular, you know, places would bring in, I would know executives on a comedy team that would bring in their true crime team. And, and, and I was able to be like, you know, it's just like, however you can kind of phrase something to sell it. I'll be like, it's like a funny, <laughs> it's like a funny jinx. It's like a Nathan for you meets Tiger King. You just say, I was going to say, how many times did you throw Tiger King into the, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is, like, you know, it's, it's a very risk averse industry and yes. I think you can point to something successful and be like that. This will be like that. But mixed with this, I mean, that's the oldest thing in the book. And yes. but it does work because the people you're pitching to, generally speaking, have to go sell it to their boss. And yes. this is the hardest show to describe. And so if you can give them a funny clip and a little phrase like that and they can walk into their boss's zoom and be like it's this meets this and here's a, here's something that makes you laugh 
I think that's, you know, ultimately what, what was able to do it. So many, you're describing so many like hardships of the industry, but also just like how you have to persevere or try to persevere and then timing, like the hardship you're describing is just timing being right or timing being wrong and like having no power over like the timing was wrong at Hulu. Right. And then the, the guy, or it was right. And then it was wrong. And then, you know, the timing was right because there was Tiger King and Jinx. And then like you were, it was right because you got a big movie. But like it's so many who knows that was right and right and if we had done this a year later who knows you're seeing this contraction of streaming and you're seeing you know everyone slash budgets and shows and the bubble might be bursting it's like you don't know like yeah that's it's just real a lot of it's timing most of my career has been spent trying and failing to get things made <laughs> and those are like these like I, to the point that right before this got going you know after I did Borat it was a it was a I was so happy that it was well received uh, you know everyone saw it. It, it felt like it, you know, re- people really loved it. And then I spent a year in pitch meetings uh, for this and other projects. And it's just like, it's so much rejection still always, always so much rejection. And, and like, it really is the bugger to the point that before he caught me the offer on this, I was like starting to think of like, maybe I could put out like a coffee table book of like all my failed <laughs> projects. Because I have so much work. I was like, I've got hundreds of hours of what I thought were really interesting interviews with Paul, footage, this pilot, all this stuff. I was like, maybe I can do something else with it if I'm, I'm just going to never get this thing made. And I was like, oh, I had that other show. Oh, I wrote that movie a few years ago. Oh, I had this. I had a, you know, I was just like, God, my, my career is defined by what I haven't been able to complete. So it is a big relief that I was able to get this finished. And God bless Peacock. This is the project I wanted to make. Their notes were really good. It wasn't, like I was pushing against, they wanted a easier to get into, you know, wackier show. I was like, this is going to be funny sometimes. Sometimes it's going to be really sad and yeah. sometimes really uh, fucked up. And like they did, very did the yeah. timing of the rehearsal help somewhat or was that after? Because that was already- after we had yeah. already, we sold this show to Peacock, I believe at towards the end, towards the end of 2022 one or the beginning of 2022 we were in pre-production no i was at the end of 2021 because then it took a few months to like get like official green light and then and then we're shooting the the kind of bulk of the reenactment stuff in may and when did the rehearsal come out june yeah so we were already like um we were going already yeah it helped yeah so it helped you know in that hopefully it's a show that people liked that it could be compared to. So that, that's right. It, there's always things. some weird timing factor, right? People will be like, oh, it's kind of like this thing that I saw that, but I, I think that there's a, uh, there's a movement, like there's a style, there's a thing you're doing here that, that, I mean, we've seen a lot of AI writing lately. And one of the things I said, and that's terrifying and bizarre. And one of the things I thought about immediately with this show is I was like, an AI will never create this oh like, my god like, there's no chance <laughs> like we're i mean yeah maybe, maybe a few decades down the line but we're very far from this I, kind I of i think you're absolutely right though because i do think ai is going to take over in terms of the bulk of like mediocre content very soon like people right. who write this kind of forgettable stuff um are going to be out of work because you could click one button and it'll write a compelling season of a a mainstream drama <laughs> or whatever oh absolutely like you can't yeah you can't find like what it, the the elements that bring this kind of thing together and then turn it into something that's self-reflexive and aware and like all these ins and outs cannot be done without like you can't just research the prior 100 years of writing on 
TV and movies, like to do that, like not yet, so not yet. Yeah, that not that yet. is the task. That's the main task of the human race ahead is to figure out how what can we create that AI can't do as it gets better and better and better. So that's the only thing we have left to figure out. Yes, it's survival and meaning is like well, what if AI can do everything? What can we do now? What are we good for? Like that is going to be the big. That is going to be the big question of um the years coming up. Yeah. I think that it's inspiring in a way to think about the way forward for humanity. <laughs> this, it's the only way. It's the only way. Alti Goldman is the only way forward. Alti Goldman. Alti Goldman is the only hope for humanity. Yes. <laughs> That's kind of where we went. I mean, if there's a good side to what's happening, it's that there's a lot of content that's somewhat forgettable, good or bad, whatever you think about it, but like mid- middle range that we can stop worrying about creating <laughs> yes. can be automated. There are tasks that are going to be automated. People might like automated tasks, just like they like microwavable food or something, but there's going to be some bespoke stuff. I don't like that word, but that's what it is that like no one else, no, that only certain people can do. Well, you notice as soon as like that, that, that avatar thing that came at the, the AI avatar thing where you, uh, not the movie, but like where you like put 20 photos of yourself and it does like a hundred beautiful yes. Yes. a week. And what it did was instantly completely devalue any kind of impressiveness of any kind of portrait painting or illustration where now if you see someone's face drawn or painted you like assume oh well yeah they paid 3.99 and got the thing and so it's like oh it's completely destroyed that people spend their lives focusing on it and there's just you know, there's gonna be the stuff that you just have this innate sense that a human made it and ma- I mean, the machines will get better and better at at tricking that. But there's still you're right. You watch you watch Paul's work and no machine could have written that. <laughs> it's because a human. Yeah. I mean, right. The, the, the thing that drew me to him is a fascination with just marveling at. And this is why to me, it's very different than just laughing at someone. It's marveling at the decisions that his mind made in terms of yeah. how he wanted to tell his story, in terms of the details he felt were interesting. and. They were interesting and maybe in a different way than he thought they were interesting. You know, so it's like the work I love, when you watch work from real filmmakers, you're watching a person express themselves in a way that, I I don't know, there's still like, there's still something that humans have uh, to bring to the table, I think. And that, but that is going to be more and more important in kind of isolating and and honing in on what that is because generic kind of non-personal, non-true feeling, non-human feeling work, uh, I mean, yeah, it's all it's all going to go away. There's going to be no no value to it anymore. And I mean, I, it's a great way. It's a great note to end it on, because I do think that it's also not particularly like heightened. It is heightened, the story you're telling, but it's very regular. Like there's very regular human experience at the heart of it that like anyone can exp- have or relate to, you know? Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much for taking the time oh. to do this. I'm excited for this show. <laughs> Come back anytime you got anything. Come back with the pitches that don't work. That would be fun. <laughs> when you, if you've given up on something and you're like, I'll never sell it, you can come on this podcast and just talk about it. <laughs> Thanks so much, George. This was so much fun. Likewise. Have a great weekend. You too. Bye, Jason. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Jason, for coming on the podcast. Always a pleasure to talk to somebody about comedy, one of my personal favorite things that has really fallen by the wayside in so many ways, but 
as we talked about in the interview, I feel like Jason's been a part of some of the stuff that's really worked well. And it's interesting to find out why. Also really appreciate his honesty about the struggle to continue to push forward when you're hitting walls and hearing no's, but you got something that you think could work. And of course, this whole concept of battling what AI can do, that's where we're headed. If you can come up with something unique uh, that only a human is capable of creating and experiencing, at least at this point, I think that's going to put you way ahead of the game. If you want to learn more about filmmaking, filmmaking tools, tech, tips, education, all the good stuff, head over to nofilmschool.com. Please remember to like, rate, and subscribe to this podcast. Send us comments at editor at nofilmschool.com. Also send us your questions and we will answer them on our weekly show, which typically releases on Thursdays. We also have a lot of good Sundance film festival content that's been up on this podcast. Special thanks to Gigi Hawkins for doing so much of that. And we have some roundtables still rolling out. So be sure to check out all of those. Oscars are coming up. We're going to have some special guests and also probably resurface some of our interviews this year with so many of the nominated filmmakers and craftspeople this year. It's been a great year for movies, but also for the No Film School podcast, because we've had a lot of these people on to talk about their work. Thank you again so much for listening. 